Chapter Five, Part Two of Industrial Biography, Ironworkers and Toolmakers by Samuel Smiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall. Colebrookdale Ironworks, The Darbys and Reynoldses. Among the important improvements introduced by Mr. Reynolds while managing the Colebrookdale works was the adoption by him for the first time of iron instead of wooden rails in the tramroads, along which coal and iron were conveyed from one part of the works to another, as well as to the loading places along the River Severn. He observed that the wooden rails soon became decayed, besides being liable to be broken by the heavy loads passing over them, occasioning much loss of time, interruption to business, and heavy expense in repairs. It occurred to him that these inconveniences would be obviated by the use of rails of cast iron, and having tried an experiment with them, it answered so well that in 1767 the whole of the wooden rails were taken up and replaced by rails of iron. Thus was the era of iron railroads fairly initiated at Colebrookdale, and the example of Mr. Reynolds was shortly after followed on all the tramroads throughout the country. It is also worthy of note that the first iron bridge ever erected was cast and made at the Colebrookdale works. Its projection, as well as its erection, was mainly due to the skill and enterprise of Abraham Darby III. When but a young man, he showed indications of that sagacity and energy in business which seemed to be hereditary in his family. One of the first things he did on arriving at man's estate was to set on foot a scheme for throwing a bridge across the Severn at Colebrookdale, at a point where the banks were steep and slippery, to accommodate the large population which had sprung up along both banks of the river. There were now thriving iron, brick, and pottery works established in the parishes of Maidley and Brosley, and the old ferry on the Severn was found altogether inadequate for ready communications between one bank and the other. The want of a bridge had long been felt and a plan of one had been prepared during the life of Abraham Darby II, but the project was suspended at his death. When his son came of age, he resolved to take up his father's dropped scheme, and prosecute it to completion, which he did. Young Mr. Darby became Lord of the Manor of Maidley in 1776, and was the owner of one half of the ferry in right of his lordship. He was so fortunate as to find the owner of the other or Brosley half of the ferry, equally anxious with himself to connect the two banks of the river by means of a bridge. The necessary powers were accordingly obtained from Parliament, and a bridge was authorised to be built of cast iron, stone, brick, or timber. A company was formed for the purpose of carrying out the project, and the shares were taken by the adjoining owners, Abraham Darby being the principal subscriber. The construction of a bridge of iron was an entirely new idea. An attempt had indeed been made at Lyon, in France, to construct such a bridge more than twenty years before, but it had entirely failed, and a bridge of timber was erected instead. It is not known whether the Colebrookdale masters had heard of the attempt, but even if they had, it could have been of no practical use to them. Mr. Pritchard, an architect of Shrewsbury was first employed to prepare a design of the intended structure, which is still preserved. 
Although Mr. Pritchard proposed to introduce cast iron in the arch of the bridge, which was to be of 120 feet span, it was only as a sort of key, occupying but a few feet at the crown of the arch. This sparing use of cast iron indicates the timidity of the architect in dealing with the new material, his plan exhibiting a desire to effect a compromise between the tried and the untried in bridge construction. But the use of iron to so limited an extent, and in such a part of the structure, was of more than questionable utility, and if Mr. Pritchard's plan had been adopted, the problem of the iron bridge would still have remained unsolved. The plan, however, after having been duly considered, was eventually set aside, and another, with the entire arch of cast iron, was prepared, under the superintendence of Abraham Darby, by Mr. Thomas Gregory, his foreman of pattern-makers. This plan was adopted, and arrangements were forthwith made for carrying it into effect. The abutments of the bridge were built in 1777-8, to eight, during which the castings were made at the foundry, and the ironwork was successfully erected in the course of three months. The bridge was opened for traffic in 1779, and proved a most serviceable structure. In 1788 the Society of Arts recognised Mr. Darby's merit as its designer and erector by presenting him with their gold medal, and the model of the bridge is still to be seen in the collection of the Society. Mr. Robert Stevenson has said of the structure, if we consider that the manipulation of cast iron was then completely in its infancy, a bridge of such dimensions was doubtless a bold as well as an original undertaking and the efficiency of the details is worthy of the boldness of the conception. Mr. Stevenson adds that from a defect in the construction, the abutments were thrust inwards at the approaches, and the ribs partially fractured. We are, however, informed that this is a mistake, though it does appear that the apprehension at one time existed that such an accident might possibly occur. To remedy the supposed defect, Two small land arches were, in the year 1800, substituted for the stone approach of the Brosley side of the bridge. While the work was in progress, Mr. Telford, the well-known engineer, carefully examined the bridge, and thus spoke of its condition at the time. The great improvement of erecting upon a navigable river a bridge of cast iron with one arch only was first put in practice near Colebrookdale. The bridge was executed in 1777 by Mr. Abraham Darby, and the ironwork is now quite as perfect as when it was first put up. Drawings of this bridge have long been before the public, and have been much and justly admired. A Colebrookdale correspondent, writing in May 1862, informs us that, at the present time, the bridge is undergoing repair, and special examination having been made, there is no appearance either that the abutments have moved, or that the ribs have been broken in the centre, or are out of their proper right line. There has, it is true, been a strain on the land arches and on the roadway plates, which, however, the main arch has been able effectually to resist. The bridge has now been in profitable daily use for upwards of eighty years, and has during that time proved of the greatest convenience to the population of the district. So judicious was the selection of its site, and so great its utility, that a thriving town of the name of Ironbridge has grown up around it, upon what, at the time of its erection, 
was a nameless part of the waste of the manor of Maidley. And it is probable that the bridge will last for centuries to come. Thus also was the use of iron as an important material in bridge construction fairly initiated at Colbrookdale by Abraham Darby, as the use of iron rails was by Richard Reynolds. We need scarcely add that since the invention and extensive adoption of railway locomotion, the employment of iron in various forms in railway and bridge structures has rapidly increased, until iron has come to be regarded as the very sheet anchor of the railway engineer. In the meantime, the works at Colbrookdale had become largely extended. In 1784, when the government of the day proposed to levy a tax on pit coal, Richard Reynolds strongly urged upon Mr. Pitt, then Chancellor of the Exchequer, as well as on Lord Gower, afterwards Marquis of Stafford, the impolicy of such a tax. To the latter he represented that large capitals had been invested in the iron trade, which was with difficulty carried on in the face of the competition with Swedish and Russian iron. At Colbrookdale, sixteen fire-engines, as steam-engines were first called, were then at work, eight blast-furnaces and nine forges, besides the air-furnaces and mills at the foundry, which, with the levels, roads, and more than twenty miles of iron railways, gave employment to a very large number of people. The advancement of the iron trade within these few years, said he, has been prodigious. It was thought, and justly, that the making of pig iron with pit coal was a great acquisition to the country, by saving the wood and supplying a material to the manufactures, the production of which, by the consumption of all the wood the country produced, was formerly unequal to the demand. And the nail trade, perhaps the most considerable of any one article of manufactured iron, would have been lost to this country had it not been found practicable to make nails of iron made with pit-coal. We have now another process to attempt, and that is to make bar-iron with pit-coal. And it is for that purpose we have made, or rather are making, alterations at Donington Wood, Ketley, and elsewhere, which we expect to complete in the present year, but not at a less expense than twenty thousand pounds, which will be lost to us and gained by nobody if this tax is laid upon our coals. He would not, however, have it understood that he sought for any protection for the home-made iron, notwithstanding the lower prices of the foreign article. From its most imperfect state as pig-iron, he observed to Lord Sheffield, to its highest finish in the regulating springs of a watch, we have nothing to fear if the importation into each country should be permitted without duty. We need scarcely add that the subsequent history of the iron trade abundantly justified these sagacious anticipations of Richard Reynolds. He was now far advanced in years. His business had prospered, his means were ample, and he sought retirement. He did not desire to possess great wealth, which in his opinion entailed such serious responsibilities upon its possessor and he held that the accumulation of large property was more to be depreciated than desired. He therefore determined to give up his shares in the ironworks at Ketley to his sons William and Joseph, who continued to carry them on. William was a man of eminent ability, well versed in science, and an excellent mechanic. He introduced great improvements in the working of the coal and iron mines, employing new machinery for their purpose, and availing himself with much ingenuity of the discoveries then being made in the science of chemistry, 
He was also an inventor, having been first to employ, in 1788, inclined planes, consisting of parallel railways to connect and work canals of different levels, an invention erroneously attributed to Fulton, but which the latter himself acknowledged to belong to William Reynolds. In the first chapter of his Treatise on Canal Navigation, published in 1796, Fulton says, As local prejudices opposed the Duke of Bridgewater's canal in the first instance, prejudices equally strong as firmly adhered to the principle on which it was constructed, and it was thought impossible to lead one through a country, or to work it to any advantage, unless by locks and boats of at least twenty-five tons, till the genius of Mr. William Reynolds of Ketley, in Shropshire, stepped from the accustomed path, constructed the first inclined plane, and introduced boats of five tons. This, like the Duke's canal, was deemed a visionary project, and particularly by his grace, who was partial to locks. Yet this is also introduced into practice, and will in many instances supersede lock canals. Telford, the engineer, also gracefully acknowledged the valuable assistance he received from William Reynolds in planning the iron aqueduct, by means of which the Ellesmere Canal was carried over the Pont Casilta, and in executing the necessary castings for the purpose at the Ketley foundry. The future management of his extensive ironworks being thus placed in able hands, Richard Reynolds finally left Colbrookdale in 1804 for Bristol, his native town, where he spent the remainder of his life in works of charity and mercy. Here we might leave the subject, but cannot refrain from adding a few concluding words as to the moral characteristics of this truly good man. Though habitually religious, he was neither demure nor morose, but cheerful, gay, and humorous. He took great interest in the pleasures of the young people about him, and exerted himself in all ways to promote their happiness. He was fond of books, pictures, poetry, and music, though the indulgence of artistic tastes is not thought becoming in the society to which he belonged. His love for the beauties of nature amounted almost to a passion, and when living at the bank near Ketley, it was his great delight in the summer evenings to retire with his pipe to a rural seat commanding a full view of the Rekin, the Urkel woods, with Cadder Idris and the Montgomeryshire hills in the distance, and watch the sun go down in the west in his glory. Once in every year he assembled a large party to spend a day with him on the Rekin, and amongst those invited were the principal clerks in the company's employment, together with their families. At Maidley near Colbrookdale, where he bought a property, he laid out for the express use of the workmen extensive walks through the woods on Lincoln Hill, commanding beautiful views. They were called the workmen's walks, and were a source of great enjoyment to them and their families, especially on Sunday afternoons. When Mr. Reynolds went to London on business, he was accustomed to make a round of visits on his way home, to places remarkable for their picturesque beauty, such as Stowe, Hagley Park, and the Lisos. After a visit to the latter place in 1767, he thus, in a letter to his friend John McCappen, vindicated his love for the beautiful in nature. I think it is not only lawful, but expedient to cultivate a disposition to be pleased with the beauties of nature, by frequent indulgence for that purpose. The mind, 
by being continually applied to the consideration of ways and means to gain money, contracts an indifferency, if not an insensibility, to the profusion of beauties which the benevolent Creator has impressed upon every part of the material creation. A sordid love of gold, the possession of what gold can purchase, and the reputation of being rich, have so depraved the finer feelings of some men that they pass through the most delightful grove filled with the melody of nature, or listen to the murmurings of the brook in a valley, with as little pleasure and with no more of the vernal delight which Milton describes than they feel in passing through some obscure alley in a town. When in the prime of life, Mr. Reynolds was an excellent rider, performing all his journeys on horseback. He used to give a ludicrous account of a race he once ran with another youth, each having a lady seated on a pillion behind him. Mr. Reynolds reached the goal first, but when he looked round, he found that he had lost his fair companion, who had fallen off in the race. On another occasion he had a hard run with Lord Thurlow, during a visit paid by the latter to the Ketley Ironworks. Lord Thurlow pulled up his horse first, and observed, laughing, I think, Mr. Reynolds, this is probably the first time that ever a Lord Chancellor rode a race with a Quaker. But a stranger rencontre was one which befell Mr. Reynolds on Blackheath. Though he declined government orders for cannon, he seems to have a secret hankering after the pomp and circumstance of military life. At all events, he was present on Blackheath one day when George the Third was reviewing some troops. Mr. Reynolds' horse, an old trooper, no sooner heard the sound of the trumpet than he started off at full speed, and made directly for the group of officers before whom the troops were defiling. Great was the surprise of the king when he saw the Quaker draw up alongside of him, but still greater, perhaps, was the confusion of the Quaker at finding himself in such company. During the later years of his life, while living at Bristol, his hand was in every good work, and it was often felt where it was not seen, for he carefully avoided ostentation, and preferred doing his good in secret. He strongly disapproved of making charitable bequests by will, which he observed in many cases to have been the foundations of enormous abuses, but held it to be the duty of each man to do all the possible good he could during his lifetime. Many were the instances of his princely, though at the time unknown, munificence. Unwilling to be recognised as the giver of large sums, he employed agents to dispense his anonymous benefactions. He thus sent twenty thousand pounds to London to be distributed during the distress of 1795. He had four almoners constantly employed in Bristol, finding out cases of distress, relieving them, and presenting their accounts to him weekly, with details of the cases relieved. He searched the debtors' prisons, and where, as often happened, deserving but unfortunate men were found confined for debt, he paid the claims against them, and procured their release. Such a man could not fail to be followed with blessings and gratitude, but these he sought to direct to the giver of all good. "'My talent,' said he to a friend, "'is the meanest of all talents, a little sordid dust. But as the man in the parable who had but one talent was held accountable, I also am accountable for the talent that I possess, humble as it is, to the great lord of all. On one occasion the case of a poor orphan boy was submitted to him 
whose parents, both dying young, had left him destitute, on which Mr. Reynolds generously offered to place a sum in the name of trustees for his education and maintenance, until he could be apprenticed to a business. The lady who represented the case was so overpowered by the munificence of the act that she burst into tears, and struggling to express her gratitude, concluded with, "'And when the dear child is old enough, I will teach him to thank his benefactor.' "'Thou must teach him to look higher,' interrupted Reynolds. "'Do we thank the clouds for rain? When the child grows up, teach him to thank him who sendeth both the clouds and the rain.' Reynolds himself deplored his infirmity of temper, which was by nature hasty. And as his benevolence was known, and appeals were made to him at all times, seasonable and unseasonable, he sometimes met them with a sharp word, which, however, he had scarcely uttered before he repented of it. And he is known to have followed a poor woman to her home, and asked forgiveness for having spoken hastily in answer to her application for help. This great good man died on the 10th of September, 1816, in the eighty-first year of his age. At his funeral the poor of Bristol were the chief mourners. The children of the benevolent societies which he had munificently supported during his lifetime, and some of which he had founded, followed his body to the grave. The procession was joined by the clergy and ministers of all denominations, and by men of all classes and persuasions. And thus was Richard Reynolds laid to his rest, leaving behind him a name full of good odour, which will long be held in grateful remembrance by the inhabitants of Bristol. End of chapter 5